Welcome back to episode four of the Adrenaline Podcast. I think I might be getting the hang of this thing. Uh, got a lot of things to talk about today and have a great guest on this episode, uh, Pat Myers, who's the relatively new, still head coach at uh, Lafayette University, a Division I program in Eastern Pennsylvania. Um, since we last spoke, uh, which was episode three, from Japan, things that I've done. I went camping with my daughter, which was awesome, on Lake Michigan. Michigan, by the way, in the summertime, for those of you listening to this who don't really know the Midwest, is incredible. We don't have big mountains, but we have pretty much everything else. Here's a little known fact about Michigan. Only one state in America with more coastline than Michigan. It's Alaska. We have uh, two peninsulas, they're huge. It takes about 12 hours to drive through Michigan. Uh, huge peninsulas that are completely surrounded by water on three sides with the Great Lakes. And the Great Lakes, for all intents and purposes, are like the ocean uh, without ocean smells or sharks. Um, but otherwise, you know, they're huge. Um, they can get decent waves on them. Uh, they have great beaches where we were camping a couple weeks ago. Uh, it was all sand dunes and beaches. It was beautiful. Um, so anyway, I did that. And uh, what else happened? The World Championships happened, as you know. The U.S. team pulled out uh, a nail-biter to win gold versus a stacked Canada team, very game Canada team that was defending um, their world championship from the, the last games in Denver. Uh, gold medal game, both won gold games, the time when they played in the round robin, and then uh, in the final in the gold medal game had a bit of a controversial ending. Um, but, you know, in defense of the U.S. guys uh, who – said, you know, controversial calls can come at any point during a game. You could probably point to other calls during the game. That's absolutely true. It's just really unfortunate that uh, there was a questionable offsides call and some potential clock management issues at the end of that game um, when it was such an amazing lacrosse game. If you missed it, go watch it. Go find it uh, on demand or online. Uh, and and go watch that game. It was it was a great game between two incredible teams, and would have loved to have seen it end, you know, without that controversy. But but ultimately, you know, great job by the U.S. team and the Canada team by the U.S. team reclaiming gold and and, and bringing that back home. And, and great job by Israel as well in putting these games on. Um, record number of teams participating, forty six international teams participating. Uh, they picked up the baton. England originally was going to be hosting these games and wasn't that long ago, maybe a year and a half ago that they decided that they couldn't do it logistically and, and Israel, which has only had a, a national program for seven years, picked up the baton and, and carried on and, and did for, for everything that I saw a pretty incredible job hosting this event. Um, things that stood out to me, uh, a couple things. One, I don't know if I've seen a better shooter than Ryan Brown. And this is no secret, and, and Kark was talking about it a lot on the broadcast, and what he was saying is true. 
you know, and, and I coached against him when he was playing at Hopkins and obviously he was a great scorer and a great shooter then too. He's gotten better and you really have absolutely no idea where his shot is going. And that's true with both hands from the outside. Uh, he has a multitude of release points. Um, he disguises his shot really well. He's always changing where he's shooting. So goalies have no scout on, on what's going to be happening. And, and, uh, and even more so, he does a great job getting himself into positions where, you know, he can receive the ball with his hands free. If you're not going to shut him, he's going to get himself into spots and get his shots off. And if he gets them off um, with his hands free, there's a pretty good chance they're scoring. So, you know, as a defense, you have some choices to make when Ryan Brown's on the field. Are you going to shut him uh, or are you going to are you going to really shade heavy to him? And that's that can change how you slide and recover. Uh, or are you going to let him get to those spots? And then you're just hoping that the other players on the team don't do a good job finding him. And the U.S. team did do a good job finding him. And he was such a huge factor in the games. He kept getting the shots he wanted to get and he was burying so many of them. Um, <clears throat> Another thought, again, no secret, Dylan Ward is the best goalie in the world. He, uh, he had a great games. He, I coached against him as well when he was at Bellarmine. Um, Bellarmine had a couple years where they were really rolling. Uh, they had an LSM named Schmidt, who was, I thought, the best LSM in the country. At the same time, they had Dylan Ward in the goal. And, uh, and he was impressive then, too. He's so big. He fills so much cage. And there are other big goalies that fill a lot of cage. But his shot, his hands are so fast and his, and his step. I mean, he, he gets to the ball so fast and he can recover. If he, if he goes down, a lot of times he gets his stick back up high, which is one of the advantages of being 6'5", is, you know, when he's on his knees, he can still reach up to the top of the, top of the cage. Um, but he just gets to shots all the time that as a shooter, you let him go and you're pretty sure you're going to score. There's a lot of empty cage. Maybe he's going one way and suddenly he's, sticking a leg out or getting a stick out on the ball um, in completely the other direction. Uh, he, he was so impressive. Um, Jeff Schneider did a great job uh, all tournament, but in the, in the games against the U.S. team, like Gerenlian and Baptiste, arguably the two best face-off guys in the world, and Schneider just battled. And while you know, the U.S. came out ahead in the face-off battle and controlled possession when they played the Canadian team, um, Snyder kept it a lot closer than anybody else was able to and, and really, you know, kept every, almost every draw a battle when he was in there. And for a guy, you know, his age and the, and the way he plays, playing indoor, um, you know, beat up uh, body and, and getting out there. I mean, he's tough as nails and he plays that way and getting out there and grinding out with those guys and giving his team an opportunity. Uh, I thought he was as valuable to the Canadian team as anybody they had. Um, another guy, I mean, I could list all the American guys because they're and, and most of the Canadian players as well because there are so many impressive players. Another guy who stood out to me was Curtis Dixon. And, and again, no secret, he was first team all tournament. Um, his ability to finish around the cage is just sick. He does some rare things really, really well. His wrists are so good. He's able to adjust his shot as he's releasing. And, uh, and that's rare. And he is so good with just a flick of his wrist or a slight reach as he's, as he's starting his release and getting the ball around the goalie. Um, really subtle little moves with his hands and arms that you, even, you, you don't see a lot of elite players able to do. A lot of guys have to throw fakes to get done what he does in just the way he releases the ball. 
Um, he had one finish in particular that stood out to me. It was in the semifinal against the Iroquois. I think I tweeted about it when it happened. Uh, it blew me away. He was one-on-one with the goalie. Maybe you'll remember it if you don't go find it. He was one-on-one with the goalie on a, on a transition goal, and he was, he was running at the goalie full speed, uh, and just him and the goalie. And he dropped his hands and his stick and released it really quickly. So he's running. If you can picture, he's running full speed, drops his hands and sticks and, and stick and releases from around his knees or ankles. And guys do that a lot when they're running right at the cage. And usually they flick it right into a low corner because that's where your stick is. And it's a quick release. And, and a lot of times guys score. You're so close. You're running right at the cage. If you can put it around the goalie, it's coming so fast. Uh, you're going to score. He did that and released very quickly, but lifted it like a hockey wrister and put it right underneath the crossbar from this low flick. I don't know if I've ever seen a lacrosse player do that on a field cage like that. It was ridiculous. 99.9% of guys would have shot that to the low corner and, and he somehow got a quick release and got it up underneath the crossbar. Goalie's on his knees and, and had no chance at it. Uh, but he, he finishes like that all the time. His wrist control, his arm control as he's shooting is, is next level. Um, kind of a general thought uh, from the games, you probably know and have heard that lacrosse is pushing hard for inclusion in the Olympics. There's momentum towards that right now. The FIL has really you know, professionalized themselves and has um, crossed a lot of the T's and dotted a lot of the I's that you need to do to, to make the steps towards Olympic inclusion. Um, the, there are 60 national programs around the world now, 46 of them are represented at the games. Um, I do wonder how ready our sport is for the world stage. And I think this was again, a pretty good example of that. The, the world championships are still not a very competitive event at the highest level, aside from the U S versus Canada games. They, they really stand out, uh, alone still. Um, there's a next level of teams, the rest of the blue division, and maybe one or two others that are all competitive amongst themselves. And then there's a pretty big drop. Um, most countries with teams, the vast majority, don't have a real national development program yet. Uh, most are either still in their infancy or just haven't developed a youth or high school or college developmental programs um, to feed their, their national team. Uh, and even the programs in the U.S. and Canada, while they're way advanced beyond what's going on in, in virtually every other country, you know, still aren't the, at the level that that some other major Olympic sports are at and how they develop and identify and, and develop athletes. Um, the hope is that Olympic inclusion will help to spur more internal growth in a lot of these countries as their sports commissions recognize and support lacrosse. If it becomes an Olympic sport near the sports commission in you know, wherever, South Africa, and you're, oh, wow, this is an Olympic sport now. Now you're taking that little group that, that uh, is in Johannesburg saying, hey, we really want to start a lacrosse program. You're taking them a little more seriously, and maybe you're pumping some funds into it and helping them develop nationally. So that's the hope, and, and I share that hope, that if, if this actually happens, that, you know, that's, that's what, what's going to happen. It's going to spur growth internally in a lot of these countries that it at least got it, gotten it started. Um, I do wonder how much the game will have to change to make it work as a truly international sport. It's, it's expensive. You need field space. I know I, I, as you know, if you listen to the last podcast, I've been coaching in Japan for 20 years and one of their biggest challenges is field space. Cities are incredibly crowded. There aren't a lot of fields and there aren't a lot of places to put fields. 
So um, a lot of countries don't have the, the money or the infrastructure to grow, to easily grow sports like lacrosse. Uh, so that will be challenging. Rugby has figured it out, I think, with sevens. You know, traditional rugby, rugby union has 15 players aside on the field at once. Sevens has less than half of that. They're very short games. I think they're six or seven minute halves. Game goes super fast. They're very they're high scoring and explosive and exciting. And I really enjoy watching them. I'm not a rugby purist. So, uh, so I enjoy it. I wonder how rugby purists feel about sevens. Uh, but sevens is what they're going to play in the Olympics. And uh, it seems like a much more accessible version of the sport to new fan, to both new fans like me and to uh, places trying to pick the sport up and, and develop programs. Um, <clears throat> so I wonder if lacrosse is going to have to think about making some dramatic changes to the sport uh, on the international stage, making a version that's going to be acceptable and, and easier for growth to happen internationally. Uh, and then, of course, I also have an issue with the Iroquois not being allowed to compete in, as a nation in the Olympics. And um, I don't know if there's a way around that. I don't know if there are examples out there of, of you know, Puerto Rico, for example, is not a nation in, in and of themselves. They compete in the Olympics um, under their own flag. So I wonder if they will find a way for the Iroquois to compete. Uh, if they do, then... Never mind, but uh, that'd be great. Um, if they don't, it'd really be a shame because one, they're the closest competition to the U.S. and Canada right now. But the bigger issue is it's their game, and I just don't know of another sport with the kind of of spiritual and cultural connection that lacrosse has with its native inventors. I don't know that there is one, at least one that that is accepted on an international stage. Uh, that has that kind of, of spiritual and cultural connection. And it, it would be a shame to see them shut out of the sport if it reaches the biggest international stage. I would certainly hope if that happens that the Olympics would find a way to always honor their heritage in, in the game and in presenting the game. Um, and lastly, a quick shout out to the four guys who played for me at Michigan who are on teams at the World Championships. We haven't loaded teams up yet like some programs have out there, but, but we had a few playing, and, um, and it was great to see those guys you know, getting out and, and playing on an international stage and having that experience. Bobby Riso, who was a walk-on goalie for our first D1 team, so he'd pretty much given up on playing lacrosse when he came to Michigan, and we added him as a walk-on to those early D1 teams here. And um, so fired up to see him from having kind of given up on the sport and just being a student at Michigan to, to having a D1 experience here at Michigan and then still playing with Italy uh, in the world championships. Just, just excited for him that he had that opportunity. Uh, the Smith brothers, Eric and Dixon, were locking it down for their second straight world games for the Swedish national team on defense, uh, big Swede and little Swede getting it done. I'm sure they had a great tournament. And then the most visible guy for us who I coach was Kyle Jackson playing for the Iroquois national team. Um, Kyle is Canadian, has played for the Canadian under 19 team, you know, as a potential Canadian national team player as well, but he's also part Cherokee. So qualified to play for the Iroquois team and, and on a team loaded with, you know, Thompson brothers and cousins and, and stats brothers uh I, I mentioned before the games that look out for Kyle because if he's allowed to do what he does he could he could really show up and by the end of the tournament he was playing great
and uh, it was really good to see him out there playing at such a high level um, on this stage. He's still the most talented player I've ever coached, uh, so great to see him get to shine. Um, on to our interview for this episode. Pat Myers is our guest in this episode. He recently took over as the head coach of the Lafayette lacrosse program after he was an assistant uh, at Cornell, at Bucknell, at North Carolina, and most recently at UPenn. So he's, he's been kind of a journeyman assistant. You know the Myers name because his brother Nick Myers is the longtime head coach and assistant before that at Ohio State. Ironically, Pat played for Ohio State. Nick didn't. Nick played at Springfield College. Um, but, uh, but they've each had their own paths to getting to be Division I head coaches, and now Pat has, has locked down the position at Lafayette and, uh, and happy to see that and, and really fired up that he could be our guest on this episode. I wanted to see how it's going a month or so into the job and, uh, and also um, wanted to talk to him about a number of other things, about life as a coach. Uh, we talked a little bit about the Michigan-Ohio State football rivalry, which is special to both of us. Uh, we talked about, um, he had some really cool insight about the key characteristics of being an elite college player, uh, which you'll hear. And, uh, and then we also talked about where you can find the best steak and cheese sandwich in Southern Maine. So on to the interview. We'll be back in a moment with Pat Myers. Pat Myers. Pat Myers. Pat Myers. And we are back with uh, our guest today, Pat Myers. Coach, how are you doing today? Doing great, Coach. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's awesome to have you on. Congratulations on the new job. Fired up. A lot of people fired up to see you get your first head coaching gig. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. It's, uh, it's an exciting opportunity. And, um, you know, I've certainly uh, been an eventful first month here. So I appreciate you saying that. I'm sure it has. So... I wonder, you may not remember this, I wonder if you remember the first time you and I met. Do you have any idea when that was? That's a, you know, I think I met you, Coach, it was in definitely a New England camp, I feel like. Uh, you can, possibly, yeah, you're there. Possibly New England 150, maybe. Uh, it was It was Greg Monroe's Player's Choice Camp oh. in, in Worcester, Mass. Holy Cross, baby. <laughs> Holy, hilly, very hilly, Holy Cross. That was quite a staff. That was quite a staff, wasn't it? And that's when, so you and Nick were uh, still in college and, uh, and your stepdad, Charlie Birch was there and, and it was a, uh, it was a great staff of people, but that's when you know, I first saw you and your brother together. And I remember thinking then like, man, these guys are pretty into lacrosse. <laughs> you know, they're, I wonder what they're going to do with it. And, and look at you guys now. Yeah. Well, thanks for saying that. Certainly. Uh, you know, humble beginnings for Nick and I growing up in Southern Maine and that player's choice camp was, was we, we look back on that often with uh, fond memories for sure. So I, I do recall, uh, do recall meeting the first time we met. That was, geez, what year would that have been? That was. It had to be like early 2000s, like 2000, 2001. Yeah. Time around then. Yeah, it was a long time. It was back when, back when teaching camp still existed. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I know it. Uh, dying breed for sure, coach. Yeah, no doubt. And that was a good one. It had a great staff, a lot of great people. I was 
reminiscing about it with someone else the other day and saying, you know, I, I worked it two or three years. And I remember as a college coach, you got a, uh, oh, I know I was talking to Ryan Wellner because that's where I first met Ryan. He had just come back from a year overseas in England and was a fresh college grad just getting started in coaching and was working that staff. But as a college coach, you got a, uh, a player, a college player assistant to help you with all the drill stations and stuff. And one year, my assistant was Nate Watkins oh, and one sure. year, Connor Gill, two pretty, pretty, pretty good names for assistants back in the day. Yeah, when you start rattling off the guys that worked that camp, it was an impressive group. You know, Dave Evans and Mike Springer, and um, it, that was a very impressive. I learned a Tom lot. Carmian, yeah, a lot of yeah. great, great names. Yeah, no yeah, doubt. Absolutely. So uh, you were a Buckeye. Went to went to Ohio State. Graduated in '03. Your brother now is the coach at Ohio State. He's been there a long time as an assistant and a head coach now. Um, so you both have Big Ten ties and Ohio State ties. And as a Michigan guy who grew up maize and blue and, and has been, you know, part of that rivalry his whole life, you know, I have, it has a very special place in my heart. And it's just now growing in lacrosse. But, but you lived it as a Buckeye, you know, the, the overall rivalry, even though it didn't really exist in lacrosse yet. Talk about that a little bit. How special was that rivalry? It was really special, you know. It was something that when my official visit to Ohio State ultimately uh, sold me on the place. I remember going out there vividly, flying out and going to the Ohio State-Michigan uh, football game. So that would have been uh, in the fall of 1999, uh, David Boston. I remember landing, uh, Jay Stolfer picked me up at the airport, brought me over. I walked through the train. That was back in the day where the training room was in kind of the corner of uh, of the shoe and I cut through and Andy Katzenmoyer and David yeah. Boston were sitting yeah. there and uh, they actually beat Michigan that year I think for the first time in a, in a while um, and I was just it was it blew me away uh, the, the script Ohio and the, the passion and uh, certainly on the Michigan side and then and on the Ohio State side and went to it every year as a, as a college student and certainly have been uh, immersed in it you know followed it from afar now but you know, if you haven't been a part of it, you don't really appreciate what it's all about. It's it's a special rivalry for sure. Yeah, it really is. Also, how big were David Boston's arms? Biggest guy I've ever seen in my life. I, I walked into the training room and I, I you know, thought, thought it was, uh, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger sitting there. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I remember he was getting his ankles taped, but he was a big dude. Yeah, he was a big dude. Um, <clears throat> so you and Nick have these kind of unique paths, you know, starting out in Kennebuck, Maine and, and, you know, going to different schools to play lacrosse, but both ending up coaching division one lacrosse, both being head coaches. Now I was thinking about this today. There are a lot of uh, brother combinations coaching in division one. You know, you think about the Van Arsdale brothers who have both been head coaches, uh, Guy and Mark, you think about the Dwan brothers and the Bernhardt brothers and, and others. But I don't know if there's been another time that, two brothers have been D1 head coaches at the same time. Can you think of any other time? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question, coach. I, I hadn't even really considered that. Uh, but no, no, nothing nothing off the top of my head. Uh, we've, we've certainly both been very fortunate, you know, uh, to you know, have different paths, but, um, you know, kind of end up in the, in the same place. I, I think, uh, you know, just for us, we, we enjoy the fact that we're in the same profession so that we get to see each other a lot on the road, recruiting events, you know, uh, kind of grinding together, staying at hotels, whether we're in Canada or 
Texas or, you know, doing a camp in Nashville. It's just nice to be able to, to see somebody else in your profession, obviously, that, that is um, with his family. So that, that, that part of it's very unique for sure. You and he got to coach together on the under-19 staff in 2016. I'm assuming that's probably the only time you guys have really coached together. Is that right? Yeah. Well, actually, we're, we, at, at, at that level, for sure, we coached uh, back in the day the main select squad. Yeah. Um, that was when, you know, Nick was really still, um, I think, had either just graduated from Springfield or maybe was summer going into his, his senior year. and it was a summer going into my sophomore year and myself, actually Pete Toner as well. Right. Penn State and Nick, we coached the main select squad at uh, Coach Shea's Hotbeds Camp. Nice. First couple of years there. So, yeah, there was a large gap between main select and under-19 USA team, but we, we were able to uh, circle back and uh, it was a very special experience. Well, when I see you guys on the road, you know, you're always attached at the hip and it seems like the two of you have a pretty special relationship as brothers and and peers and uh but he has all this experience as a head coach you got to be leaning on him pretty hard especially this first month or so as you're getting started yeah yeah no doubt coach you know uh the first 30 60 you know 90 days are um as you know are a little crazy and uh he's been instrumental in just kind of helping me um you know remember what's really important and what's really going to move the needle as you start a, a program or start at a new program um I think even as an assistant coach, just the ability for us to bounce perspectives off each other has always been one we've both really been grateful for. So, you know, talking to him as a head coach, I think him getting perspective from me as an assistant, um, you know, as somebody that became a head coach at age 29 for him, you know, I'm somebody that's been an assistant for the last 15 years. So I think I can provide him some unique perspective and, uh, and then likewise from his end. So, uh, but one thing he did tell me when I got the job was, you know, you're going to get pulled in a lot of different directions and, you know, wake up every morning, make a plan and do your best to try to stick to that plan and remember what's most important. I remember when uh, I was hired as the varsity coach at Michigan by Dave Brandon, the AD here at the time. And he said to me the day he made it official, he said, uh, you're the dog that finally caught the car. So hang on. <laughs> 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 that's a good way of putting it I can, it is right <laughs> I mean I, that, I think that that kind of that kind of hits the nail on the head right there for sure yeah well you you've been an assistant with some great programs I mean you were at at Bucknell and at North Carolina and at Penn all great academic institutions but all very different kinds of schools and, and also working for three pretty different kinds of head coaches what what kind of things did you take from those guys that you're using now? Yeah, no, that's a great, uh, great question, coach. I mean, and, I, you know, being at Cornell under coach Tambroni and then certainly um, for one year was instrumental for me. Uh, very eye-opening year. Uh, coach DeLuca was on that staff as well. Sure. And, uh, and then I went from there to Bucknell with coach Federaca and then to Carolina with coach Bresci and Penn with coach Murphy. So I've actually worked for, and then when you throw my brother in there with team USA, five different head coaches that, do all have very unique perspectives. Coach Tambroni at, at Cornell really just kind of showed me professionalism, what it takes to run a first-class program uh, at that level, uh, and certainly as an offensive mind, what uh, kind of diving into the intricacies of, of high, high-level offense uh, that year with Sean Greenhall and Joe Belukas and, and guys like that. And 
Um, I was able to, when I was afforded the opportunity to go to Bucknell at a really young age as an offensive coordinator, really rely on that experience. You know, Frank gave me a, a much different perspective just in terms of uh, Bucknell being more, uh, you know, do more with less and here's how to uh, navigate some challenges. And, and, you know, Frank's such a positive guy, never really, you know, looking at the negative in anything and always being able to pull the positive out of any, any challenge. And uh, Frank's an incredible father, uh, took a lot from him in terms of work-life balance which is really important in this industry. And I learned at a young age that you got to have that if you want to be around for a long time. And Frank really taught me that. Um, obviously, when I left there, I went to Carolina with Coach Bresci, who coached me. Um, you know, I think Coach has incredible work-life balance as well. Uh, and as a head coach, really just having the, the ability, he, he afforded me the opportunity to have my hand in basically every aspect of the program, from recruiting to alumni to budget to – uh, building a, a culture down there in Carolina and I really felt like him allowing me to do that I kind of saw the other side of some some things that I hadn't seen and I felt like I really was able to grow professionally down there as we um, kind of took on that challenge together and and watching him as a recruiter uh, incredible recruiter his energy his positivity his passion getting out on the road and relationship building you know he recruited me at Ohio State and you know the Woody Hayes quote you win with people that is a cliche you hear it often but it's true and coach certainly instilled that in me and um and then when I had the opportunity to get back into the Ivy League with coach Murphy you know really just that discipline mentality of fundamental approach and um you know maintaining uh, a level of of discipline and high standards that uh you know the guys can really uh you know buy into so Certainly different personalities and different uh, kind of ways of looking at the game. Um, and, you know, as a young coach, you try to look at different different views and really try to, you know, look at it and say, well, what do I believe in and, and take bits and pieces of all of them and uh, try your best to blend them together into what suits you the best. And what do you think? What do you think that is? I mean, as you're as you're building your own program for the first time at Lafayette, what do you think a Pat Myers program looks like? I think it's a program that's built on hard work, um, you know, and really, um, you know, toughness uh, and, and brotherhood. You know, Nick and I, as we alluded to, came up from, you know, humble beginnings in Southern Maine. Our parents were educators and teachers and just learned the value of working your butt off at a, at a young age, the value of education and, um, and, and what goes into that. And, um, I've always believed in, uh, you know, kind of a disciplined, hardworking um, mentality, uh, building, you know, relationships, you know, with the guys where you can push them really hard and, um, you know, you can you know, influence them in a very positive direction, uh, you know, if you can build that trust with them. And uh, if you can do that, you can build, uh, you know, a group of, of brothers that that is, you uh, ready to roll up their sleeves and work hard and plays hard. And, you know, um, when you get between those lines is ready to uh, buckle up both chin straps. And um, that part of it is fun. The competition is fun. Um, but uh, guys that kind of have a chip on their shoulder, I guess you could say, coach, you know, and, and are hungry and are excited to prove people wrong. Um, and so I think that underdog mentality, I was part of the first ever scholarship class at Ohio State back in 2000 with Coach Bresci remember that vividly as well. I think we had six freshmen on man up that year. And uh, it was a program that was, you know, 
uh, sort of average. And, and by our senior year, we made the NCAA tournament for the first time in, in the history of the program. So I've always kind of been drawn to those challenges and I, and I feel like this is no different. And uh, so we're, we want to recruit those same kind of kids. And I, I would hope that our play would reflect that. You know, just a, a quick aside, I, I, you mentioned your upbringing in Maine. I heard a rumor that uh, back in the day at Bennett's Sandwich Shop oh, in Kennebunk, you could make a really good steak and cheese. You you just hit a soft spot in my heart. I <laughs> took me back. I could use one of those right now. Uh, yeah, that's the best steak and cheese around. Um, Nick Nick could flip a mean steak and cheese too. He, he actually saw. I talked to him earlier today, and he said that making sandwiches at Bennett's is actually the only thing you're better than him at. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah. So he gave you that one little pump. That one little tidbit, huh? Yeah. That one little tidbit. Yeah. He 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 was he was decent at it. You know, he didn't quite have the, uh, the same <laughs> skills on the grill, I think. But uh, no, we we both had fun right by the beach and. Uh, there was a one day where Nick came in on his on his off day and the place was so packed he ended up I think one of the one of our bosses threw him a shirt Nick hopped behind the grill started flipping steak and cheeses and getting people out the door um if you're ever up there you should check it out Bennett's sub now that now that I'm hearing about it absolutely there's nothing wrong with a great steak and cheese no doubt uh you know you mentioned uh a little bit about learning from some of the guys about work-life balance and, and you've got two daughters uh, one who's six, same age as my daughter. And, and I know, uh, how hard it is as a, as a coach, especially a division one coach to find that balance. What do you think you need to do to make, to make it happen, to, to find the time you need to be with your family? Yeah, that's a great question, coach. You know, I mean, it goes by so fast as you know, blink. Um, I think you got to really prioritize, uh, right now I'm actually commuting from Philly. So, um, frame do that for about a year until the family moves up here, but they're, they're the most important thing in my life. There's no doubt. Uh, my wife and two girls and, you know, for them, they are the reason that I'm able to do what I do. They're so supportive that when you walk in that door, I think being able to shut your phone down and, um, uh, really give them the attention that they deserve and be there for them and, um, you know, make, make it a priority to, um, to make them a priority. Uh, is important. It's, it's easy to say that, but I think your obviously actions are going to speak louder than, than your words there and um, being there for them in the morning. Just having breakfast with them is, I think, they just love uh, being around their dad. And uh, it doesn't have to, anything big or small, that time spent with them, uh, you don't get that to, you can't do that over. So um, try my best to just maintain that balance. Having them around the program, you know, bringing them, whether it's to the office, or I think one of the attractions of being here, Coach, was just it's a great family atmosphere, small, tight-knit community. There's a lot of kids running around uh, and having the kids be a part of the program. Know your guys. You know, you want your guys to, I've often said, you, the biggest compliment you can give a, a player is, you know, you're the kind of guy that, that I'd let date my daughter. <laughs> yep. um, and so those are the kind of guys you want to recruit and you want your kids to be around them, so as role models. And uh, so I want my family to be involved in the program and certainly do my best to to maintain that level of balance with them yeah and, and uh you know you just said they want to be with you soak that up while you can right i mean we both have six-year-olds you got a younger one too but they're uh I'm, I'm anticipating the teen years so i'm trying to soak up all the love i can right now because there's a lot of it 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, that you know, they want to hang on you. They want to jump into yeah. bed with you. And, you know, those are going to fly by. And all of a sudden, they don't really want nothing to do with you. I know at some point, I'm sure they're, you know, when they become teenagers, you, you'll you you'll get the get the Heisman. But uh, enjoy, trying to enjoy every moment, coach. And just, it's so frantic that you want to just try to take it one day at a time and enjoy where you are and what you're doing and, and have fun with it. So August is, and the holidays a little bit are typically the times that lacrosse coaches can get away and spend some real family time. Do you have a spot that you guys go every August? Yeah, Nick and I usually try to meet up in Maine. We, we've we've uh, rented a house on the lake uh, every year in August, um, various places, North Carolina, uh, upstate New York, places like that. But typically we try to get up to Maine. This summer we're going to do something different. We're taking our father uh, out to out west and then uh, going fishing up in Alaska. Again, just nice. in the vein of trying to, or, or he turned 70, so we're trying to spend some time, uh, some father-son time with him and uh, excited to do that. So um, August is obviously a, a nice month for coaches. So. Yeah, no doubt. You'll love, have you been to Alaska before? No, I have not. First timer. Yeah, you'll love it. It's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Somebody told me once, see all the national parks in the lower 48 before you go to Alaska because it'll ruin them all for you. And it, oh, it kind of does. There's a lot of, lot of nature up in Alaska. You guys will have a blast. Looking forward to it. Yeah, for sure. Um, <clears throat> so back to lacrosse stuff. What's, you know, you've been a, you've been a head coach now for a month. Uh, what's the, the biggest difference? And I'm sure you, you know, you've been around it long enough to anticipate a lot of this, but is there anything that surprised you? Um, I think, I mean, certainly you, you, you want to be as prepared as possible, but you're never, I guess, really prepared, right, until you sit in that chair. Uh, I think just how, how many different, you know, hats I'm wearing right now. Uh, as you pull together your staff, uh, which I've been fortunate enough to be able to hire two, you know, I, I feel like incredible guys. Um, you know, you, you're wearing all those different hats and from alumni to parents to uh, your current team, recruits. And uh, I think just really – um, the, the pace of that, uh, is something that I anticipated, but until you're in it in that first month, that first 60 days, you have a plan. And then that plan can kind of get sidetracked a little bit as you get pulled in different directions. So, um, I don't know that that's surprising, but just more of a, something that I'm trying to learn how to manage. Like I said, prioritize what is going to really make an impact and move the needle, uh, on a daily basis and what's most important. And those are the things that, you know, you've always thought in your mind as an assistant coach, what, what you think is important, but until you're actually the one making the final decision on certain things or, um, you know, working through certain uh, situations that you uh, need to put a little bit more thought behind it when you're the one that ultimately uh, it falls on you. Kind of equate it to what we always, you know, would tell recruits that you, you get to from high school to division one lacrosse and all of a sudden everything's going so much faster and your life is different. Academics is harder. Social life is bigger and you've got to start making choices and you've got to make choices quickly. It's kind of the same thing as stepping up to be a head coach, right? Yeah, it's a great comparison like you, coach. Like you just jumped in from, from high school to division one. Here you go. Speed of play just picked up a little bit. We got a shot clock. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's right. I've always thought of you, uh, as a really technical coach who really focuses on fundamental skill development, would you describe yourself that way? Yeah, definitely. I think that's fair. I, you know, I, I love to, you know, build from the ground up, definitely believe in, in, in a fundamental, um, 
you know, disciplined uh, style of, of lacrosse and uh, love teaching that the technical aspects of the game, the, the individual player development is something I've always back to my Cornell days with coach Tambroni and, and working with the kids in the off season. I'll never forget my first year, my only year there, we got to that kind of off season phase and he, he was, you know, I was excited when he said that you can kind of take this over. And I remember putting together kind of a 30 day plan. Like, how are we going to get our guys better uh, on the field? And that was back in the group of four day, you know, when you could right. only have four guys at a time and okay, what are we going to do to build this Packman's game? What are we going to do to build this midfielder's game? And, you know, still to this day, I think back on that when you had those four guys and what really, what moved the needle in terms of them getting better as an individual and then being able to carry that over and fit it into the bigger picture, um, is that you feel like that can get lost sometimes in this day and age. It's funny, isn't it? You know, that, that rule changed, and now you, know, you can use however many guys you want in your off-season practice sessions as long as you stay within the hours, and, and it, as you, it just creates more choices, right? There weren't as many choices back then. You had four guys. Coach, 100%. And, and so you could really drill it down to, like you just said, I got to do what can make these four guys better. You had no choice. Yeah, you had no choice. You were going to work on, you know, shooting technique and dodging and stick protection. And now it's all of a sudden, okay, well, you have four hours in the offseason with them on the lacrosse field and you can have the whole team at once. It's tempting to say, well, let's scrimmage or yep. let's work on riding and clearing or, and there's value in those things as well. But I think you really got to take a step back and, focus on making players better as individuals because ultimately if you make players better as individuals then hopefully the the greater um you know some will will get better and and that's really where that relationship building comes in too where you can take no doubt out of a kid's hand and and you can see him get better right then and there and they you know that's where you're really starting to build that trust with them I was doing a couple of years ago, I was doing a one-on-one -on -one shooting session with one of my guys, which, you know, as a, as a, again, as a division one head coach, you don't get to do that very often anymore. And I hadn't done it in a while and, and he hadn't done it in a while and he hadn't done it with me ever. And he said to me during the session, he's like, this reminds me of when I was with my father, like shooting with my dad and that's it. Right. I mean, that's the relationship building. That's so important. You can only get with small group or individual work. Absolutely. Coach. Um, You've had the opportunity in the programs you've been at to coach some pretty incredible players. What do you think is, is the biggest separator? I mean, there's a lot of talent, right? And there's a lot of guys that come into college lacrosse who are really talented and have a ton of potential. What makes the great ones great? A couple of things. I think the one, one thing, I can't remember where I heard it, but, you know, uh, coachability being a, a skill set. Uh, I think is something that when you get a kid that is one of the best just talent wise and has that natural ability, it, when they're coachable, it makes everybody around them better. And so I think the great ones make everybody around them better. And I think one of that is just their drive and their competitiveness. But the other is their willingness to be coached and be a great teammate. Yep. And I think when they're willing to be coached, they raise everybody's game around them and when other players see that you know then all of a sudden they have a better relationship with their teammates and their coaches and you know not only do they get better because they're just they're coachable but they get better because they're making all if it's an offensive guy the five other guys around them better 
and everybody uh, is successful as a result. And uh, when you see it happen, it's really special and it's almost like you can almost reach out and touch it. It's almost tangible. But um, to me, that separates guys that just have that talent that, you know, um, not necessarily not coachable, but maybe aren't as receptive to trying new things or to, I would just call it buy-in coach to, you know, the culture and the cultural alignment piece that, you know, kind of get it and what, as a coach, what the message is that you're trying to get across yep. and, uh, that really support that. And then all of a sudden their game takes off and everybody else around them uh, follows. And I think to me, that's the greatest separator. That's a great answer. And I, I think it's, I think it's overlooked sometimes, right? Uh, but it's, it's so important and it's such an important part of leadership is, is, uh, is accepting information as well. Yeah, I think it goes both ways too. You know, as a head coach now too, I want to be coachable to my assistants and, and learn from them. And I want to be coachable to the players and be able to receive feedback from them. And I mean, everybody says they want feedback. And I think we've all, I mean, for myself, certainly something I've grown in terms of being doing a better job of receiving that and, and being able to be coachable myself in various ways. And I think when you get a group around each other that where everybody's willing to just you know, um, set their ego aside and, and be a coachable group. And I think you can do special things. So, uh, you know, you've been, again, going back to, you've been in the game a long time, been an assistant coach for, for quite a while. I know you've poked around at some head coaching jobs here and there, but what drew you to Lafayette? What, uh, what excites you about this job? Yeah, I appreciate that question, coach. I, I you know, was very happy at, at Penn. Certainly I've always, you know, had the desire and, and wanted to be a head coach, no doubt. Um, Sharita Freeman, the new athletic director here at Lafayette, is is terrific. And so we were together uh, at Penn for two years. She left to be the AD uh, here at Lafayette in February and reached out. Uh, you know, we had had some conversations uh, when, when things opened up at the end of the year. And back to my original uh, point on the, the Woody Hayes quote, you win with people. I think just my connection to her and uh, being drawn to her vision and her personality and knowing what she was going to do here and really believing in lacrosse uh, initially drew me here. And uh, when I came out and looked at it, I just fell in love with the campus, uh, fell in love with the facilities. Uh, geographically, it's, it's you know, halfway between Philly and New York City. So I think geographically, it's a home run um, in, in that regard. Uh, and, and having been at places like Penn, Bucknell, and Cornell, you understand the academic cachet that a place like Lafayette has. And so I think the combination of all those things and having great people in place, uh, Katie McKittrick, the uh, Associate uh, Athletic Director and Deputy AD here, uh, has been phenomenal uh, as well. Uh, so I think great people, uh, great school, um, and an opportunity, coaches, as I touched on earlier, to build something here uh, the challenge of building something here uh, where maybe the competitive success on the field hasn't been there was something that really drew me in. Do you think that's maybe your biggest challenge there is, is changing that self-perception of what the program can be? Definitely. Definitely. I think that, you know, current roster, I think for those guys, it's, you know, building a sense of belief that they, that they can win. And, um, and then I think on the out for the outside world, it's yeah. I mean, I think people look at it and say, well, you know, what's different? What's changed? Uh, why Lafayette? As you're asking me now, and uh, our director of admissions, Matt Hyde, uh, I feel like you know is is a terrific man, and I've developed uh, in a short period of time. I feel like I've 
been able to develop a good relationship with him and he's very supportive of our program. Um, and uh, he, he was in my interview process uh, and uh, felt like he was somebody that was going to be a, a game changer uh, for us. Um, and I think, you know, gave me some perspective on what the perception of Lafayette lacrosse is. And, you know, we're going to have to work hard to certainly change that perception. There's no doubt. But uh, we've had a great response so far in recruiting. And when you get young men in here, you know, they ask what's changed. Um, you know, we, 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 we can tell them that, hey, look, at, we have the support of the president and the athletic director. And uh, we want to make across a hallmark sport here at Lafayette. And those are both such incredibly important things. I think it's, it's at any school, but especially at a smaller school. You know, Lafayette's known as a, as a great liberal arts college. Uh, what do you think about the role, and this is a little bit of a tangent, what do you think about the role of a liberal arts degree in developing people nowadays? I feel like it's, you know, it was so popular when I went to school. I'm a hist I was a history major. Uh, but I feel like so many people are looking for other paths now or, or more direct paths to whatever goal they've set for themselves. What do you think of the strengths of a liberal arts degree that they could get at a school like Lafayette? Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly believe in it, uh, you know, and I think the opportunity to come in and, and sample some different things your freshman year and really figure out what it is that suits you best. You know, you don't have to declare your major to your sophomore year, which is nice. And you have a, a plethora of majors to choose from. And although, you know, we do have a lot of guys that go that business route, you know, you have the government and law, you have the we certainly have engineering here as well, but I, I for me, it, it's just guys think they know what they want. They might come in thinking they want business and they end up uh, majoring in history like you're talking about. And I think giving kids the opportunity to, to kind of feel that out a little bit is maybe something that's to your point lost on, on, on some people and that they maybe narrow their focus uh, too much too soon and come to realize later in life that there, there's a lot out there to choose from. So I've always believed in it. And, uh, you know, certainly something that we sell here because I think it's powerful. I do too. I've always thought that liberal arts degrees teach you to, to think and research and communicate and you can translate those into almost any career. No, no doubt. I'll tell you another story. And this is one that I <clears throat> would tell our players and, and recruits all the time. Uh, we had an alumni game one year. We had like 70 guys back. And at the end of the alumni game, I asked them, to talk to our team and each of them introduce themselves and, and say what they're doing now. And they had, uh, you know, their careers were all over the map and certainly it's lacrosse. So there are a lot of, you know, wall street type guys and banking guys, but there were people doing everything. And then I asked them uh, to raise their hands. How many guys are doing what you thought you were going to be doing when you were in college and of the 70, like 10 did. Right. So yeah, you just hit the nail on the head and that's just it. So and I think you want to have the opportunity to sample and then, you know, see what, what feels right. How's your uh, approach to recruiting changed over the years? And obviously it's going to have to change some at Lafayette compared to the schools that you were at. Um, and you also have new rules that, that are a year old now that, that everybody's probably pretty dug into now and is starting to figure out. How's your approach changed? Well, I think the last month, Coach, I've watched Rising Seniors only, and it's been very refreshing to watch the older kids and understand how many good players are out there, certainly good students. Uh, it's been very refreshing uh, in that regard, and a lot of, a lot of late bloomers, and it's a good fit for Lafayette because those kids are going to have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder anyways because um, maybe they've been overlooked or, you know, whatever the case might be. But 
Um, so that maybe that part of it has changed for me in terms of the timeline uh, and, and where, um, you know, they're going to, to really fit for, for us. In terms of what we're looking for in kids, I mean, that, that's always been pretty consistent and, uh, you know, great, you know, great person, great student, great player. And when I was at Carolina, Anson Dorrance down there who's won, you know, 20 plus national championships. Yeah, amazing. Women's soccer. I remember hearing him say, and he talked about this, and we tried to, to recruit this when I was at Carolina. So there's three things I'd look for in a player because people would always say, how do you get your girls to play like guys because they would play so tough. And he said, you know, there's three things, self-belief, self-discipline, and competitive fire. And you got to have two out of the three or I'm not going to recruit you. Um, competitive fire being probably the most important piece. If you lack competitive fire, you know, I'm not going to recruit you. And then certainly the self-belief, believing in yourself, and, and then the self-discipline. Um, those are kind of things you try when you try to dig a little deeper in recruiting and learn more about a young man and understanding what goes into makes them tick. Those are things I've always carried with me. And, uh, you know, said to the staff, if we evaluate our current roster on those three things, it might be telling on kind of where certain guys land. Um, and so we try to look for that in, in, uh, in recruiting. And sometimes, you know, the challenge when you're recruiting is, is passing on really talented kids who aren't checking those other boxes, right? Yeah, no, it takes, it takes discipline on your end to, no to resist that urge to say, you know what, this kid's got a great split dodge, but how competitive is he, you know? Which, which leads to uh, a question, more important, talent or culture? Yeah, well, I mean, I think culture, I think you need both for sure. Uh, as Barry Switzer once said, it's not the alignment, it's the alignees. Um, you know, which always made me chuckle, but culture, culture, culture beats, beats talent. Uh, and I've always felt that way or culture beats beats strategy, but culture, I think over talent for sure. But I think you can't win with just culture. You certainly need to have uh, talented players. If you put them in the right culture, that's when things, you know, you have something very special, but you can't put the cart before the horse. If you have talent without culture, the team that has a great culture is going to win 10 out of 10 times. I have a, uh, I have a great Barry Switzer story. I'll tell you one. I can't tell it on the air here. So I'll tell you when we're done. Sounds good. <laughs> um, so it's the middle of the summer circuit right now. We're actually heading towards the tail end here of the summer circuit. The kids are, have been playing now, you know, their high school seasons and now they've been on the road with their travel teams the last month or so. And it's hot and they got long days and they got lots of events. What's your advice to them down the stretch here these last two, three weeks of summer? lacrosse yeah these kids probably play more lacrosse than they should be honest but you know I think it's just continue to play hard and be a good teammate you know I mean it's don't play for the sideline you know play for for your teammates and I know that that's a cliche but they see the coaches sitting on the sideline and they might you know change their game a little bit and you know just continue to you know pick up ground balls with two hands and dive for end lines and you know, when a teammate scores a goal, be the guy that runs in there and congratulates him. I mean, I, I value those things and I know every coach in the business does. So um, those things are important. And when it gets hot and you get tired and those things can start to fade away a little bit. No question. Uh, one, one last question for you. If uh, I'm not sure who my next guest is going to be, I got a, I got a line of coaches that I'm, I've got uh, lined up to, to interview. But if you could ask, I mean, you, you gave some great tidbits from other co coaches, Coach Dorrance and Coach Switzer and, and some of the other, some of the 
lacrosse coaches you've been around as well. If you could ask the next coach any kind of general coaching question, what's something that always comes to your mind that you want to know what other people do? <laughs> that's a that's a really good question. Um, I've always, you know, I'm fascinated with culture, as I know you are, Coach. Uh, I've always wondered, you know, I always, you know, people talk about your first team meeting and kind of the way you message things to your guys. And then, you know, is that important or is it every day after that's more important? Um, I've always kind of wondered with a lot of these guys, I'd love to be sitting, I'd like to be a fly on the wall that first day when they meet their team, you know, when they look them in the eye, you know, what kind of message are they sending? What are they, what are they, what points are they hitting? Uh, what did they feel? And that if you have an hour with your team, they're coming, they're rolling into campus, whether it's your first time meeting the team or whether it's your 15th year, you know, that still has got to excite you, that first team meeting. And, and what does that look like? I'd love to, to kind of get thoughts from, you know, from the great ones and kind of what that, what that looks like, what that feels like. Cause I, I think that's, that's intriguing to me. That's a great one. I'm going to ask it next time. I love it. Well, Coach Myers, I, uh, I really appreciate your time today. It's great to have you on and, uh, and wish you nothing but the best at Lafayette. I'm sure it's going to be a great run. Coach, Coach Paul, thanks so much for the support. Um, uh, you know, certainly humbling to be on with you and I uh, really enjoyed uh, talking, talking it through. And uh, when you're up in Maine, you should definitely uh, check out Bennett's and grab yourself a steak and cheese. Hey, you know I will. I will. I will. And we're back. That was great, wasn't it? Sometimes you just have really easy conversations, and I felt like that was one of those. And, and a lot of times when I'm talking to another coach, that's what happens. But, um, but, uh, but I really enjoyed that one and got some really good things out of it as well, and I hope you did too. Uh, a couple things that stood out for me from Coach Myers. One, you know, I asked him – what he thinks it takes, what separates the guys who are truly elite at the division one level. And he's coached some great ones in the stops that he's been at and his answer, and he answered it pretty quickly was coachability. And, and that surprised me a little bit. You hear, you know, a lot of different answers to that one, whether it's, you know, obviously talent and, and work ethic and drive and competitive spirit. And he talked, his first answer was coachability. He thought that was a separator. And and uh, I don't necessarily disagree. Obviously, coachability, if that's something that is learned young, um, allows somebody to develop uh, maybe faster because they are processing, not only processing information that they're getting from others, um, maybe better and, and more often than some of their peers, but they're seeking it out. Really coachable players are seeking out criticism. They want criticism. They want to know what they can do better. They want to know what they're not doing well enough. Obviously, they want to know what they're doing well too. They want pats on the back and and positive criticism, just like we all do. But uh, but a lot of the truly great ones are are looking for advice on how to get better. And and you watch that in, in every sport amongst all the. The, the best at what they do. And it's, that's so often true. And one of the great byproducts of that 
is it's a great leadership characteristic. If your best player or players on your team are also the most coachable, are also the ones who are seeking out criticism, who are who are looking their coach in the eye, who are saying, you know, yes, sir, yes, coach, uh, and and always challenging themselves to learn more and, and push themselves harder, that trickles down to the rest of the team. That creates culture. And, and that's such a great leadership byproduct. If, if your best players are the ones who are also, you know, pushing the coaches to, to challenge them the most um, and taking, taking that and turning it into, you know, positive energy to, to work harder and always be working on their craft. Um, <clears throat> another thing he, he talked about, uh, what he learned from Anson Dorrance. If you don't know who Anson Dorrance is, look him up. He's the longtime women's soccer coach at university of North Carolina. I imagine he's probably the winningest women's soccer coach ever. He's kind of, the Gino Ariema, um, UConn basketball coach. He's kind of the women's soccer version of Gino. Um, and, uh, and when, Coach Myers was in North Carolina, obviously had, a, had access to Coach Dorrance. It's one of the great things about coaching in the, at the college level is you're surrounded often by other great coaches, and you can learn so much from so many of them. But uh, he said one of the great things he learned from Coach Dorrance was uh, that when he recruited, he was looking for three characteristics and wanted his recruits to have at least two of those. One was self-belief, one was self-discipline, and one was competitive fire. He emphasized competitive fire as being the most important. I used to say that a lot in my recruiting when I was talking to prospects when they, when they were visiting us or I was talking to them on the phone. I, I, would, I would say, you know, we're looking for really, really competitive people who, uh, who, you know, when they're playing their grandmother in a game of cards, they want to kick their grandmother's butt. I mean, they just, they always want to win. And uh, you can take that a little bit too far, I think, sometimes if you're not coachable. And you're not, uh, you know, always, um, and, and your, your body language is poor and you get frustrated when you don't win, but we want people who always are driven to win. And, uh, interesting that, that coach Dorrance highlighted that it's the most important characteristic, uh, for the people that he recruits to his program that wins national championships. She's about every other year. Um, and self-belief so important to be confident without being cocky, but really believe in yourself. Uh, and, and that's not as common as you would think. Um, and self-discipline, obviously, which to me just translates to toughness. They're, they're very similar. If you're, if you're disciplined enough, i.e. tough enough to make the right decisions, to do the right things, to say the right things, to do things the right way, um, whether that's get up early in the morning and work out on your own or get really good reps when you could be lazy and not get great reps or do your homework when you need to do it or, uh, or be honest in everything you do or be a great leader and, and hold your teammates accountable. All those things come back to self-discipline. And, and to me, again, in, in my core values that I always emphasize that translates to toughness. Um, so that was interesting that those were the things that Coach Dorrance really emphasized in his recruiting. And then uh, one other thing that really stood out to me is I asked right at the end of the interview, I asked Coach Myers if he could ask coaches any question in these podcasts, uh, if he could come up with a question for them. He, he said he'd love to be a fly in the wall in their first team meeting of the year and, and know what they say in that meeting. What are they saying and, the, and how are they delivering that information that sets the tone for the year. Uh, Cause that first meeting can be so important uh, in, 
in setting that tone and in, in, in having expectations set for, for what you want your team to be and what most, what is most important to your team. And, you know, the problem with those first meetings and I've run, you know, 25 or 30 of them is uh, you also have logistics you have to get through usually on the first meeting. And what I learned is to, you know, a lot of logistics you can get out of the way either in other ways or in other meetings. So we would try to pare those down to only what was truly necessary in the first meeting and, and really try and just emphasize what our team was going to be about for that year. What were the really important key things that, that we had to highlight? Uh, and, and that's, you know, what we, what we turned our first team meeting into. I'd be really interested along with, you know, coach Myers, uh, in how other coaches approach that first meeting, how much planning goes into it, how much prep goes into it, and what kind of message are they delivering and how are they delivering it. Um, we were talking about Coach Dorrance uh, and recruiting, and I'm going to switch gears now away from the interview and, and on to a couple things before we go. Uh, and speaking of recruiting, September 1 is coming up fast, less than a month away, uh, which is when contact, direct contact can be can begin between juniors in high school, so the class of 2020, and Division One coaches. This is going to be a really interesting year for that. Uh, the the new rules limiting contact to September one of junior year and on just are, are just over a year old. Year year and a couple months old, and they are really hitting this 2020 class in particular much harder than they hit any other class or in a much different way. I don't know if harder is the right word. This class is the one that was kind of stuck in the middle. So there were a lot of recruited committed 2020s before the rule hit and then it hit and suddenly you had over a year, a year and three months or so year and four months that uh, those committed kids suddenly could not have direct contact with the coaches they committed to anymore. That's a long time to not be in any contact. Uh, and I think heading into what I'm getting, talking to a lot of coaches, is it's kind of created a reset for this class. There are certainly a large number of kids who are probably going to commit again um, on September 1, once they can again directly speak to the coaches that, that they made their deals with or to the programs that they made their deals with. And there are a number that might not or there are a number of changes that might happen. Uh, there won't be a big rush probably on new commitments because coaches will want to get to know those kids that they hadn't spoken to before, gotten to know before. Imagine there'll be a number of prospect days in the fall that schools will run to get kids on campus so that they can get to know them a bit. Um, but I don't, uh, I don't think there'll be a rush on new commitments right away. I do think that a lot of kids in the 2020 class, given the opportunity to commit, uh, if there are new opportunities that come up for them, if they weren't committed previously, many of them will probably jump at opportunities quickly. Um, but I think there'll be a lot of changes between then and NLI signing a year later um, as, as other opportunities come about. So this is gonna be an interesting process, most particularly for this class. I think after that, the 2021 class only had I say only, um, but, but only had six, seven, eight guys maybe committed. So it won't affect that class in the same way. Those guys are going to roll into what recruiting is going to become a more natural evolution of the recruiting process. Um, <clears throat> this class though, the 2020s are, are going to have an interesting time of it this fall. And, uh, um, 
I'm going to enjoy sitting back and watching it. Uh, one of the things that I always hated about early recruiting, and there were a number of things I didn't like about it, and we had to do it at Michigan. I felt like we had to do it at Michigan. We were competing against other Big Ten schools that were doing it. We were competing against ACC schools that were doing it in recruiting, and, and we were competing against Ivy League schools. Those were the, the programs that we were most often butting heads with, and most of them were doing this. Even some of the ones that said they weren't were. Uh, most of them were doing it as well. And um, so, you know, we felt like we had to, to have access to some of the same kids. Uh, I didn't like it for the obvious reasons. I didn't like it because I felt like it was putting too much pressure on, on young people and their families. Uh, I felt like we were all making potentially um, bad decisions at times that might have to change later uh, because kids maybe didn't develop or lost their passion or, um, or their grades didn't pan out or they didn't become the kinds of, of leaders and people that we, that we all thought they were going to be or their interests changed. Uh, and, and, the, and so, you know, it was putting kids in a position to make decisions that they might have to change in the future. And what bothered me about that was the most was integrity is one of the words that we all preach as coaches all the time. It was one of the core values that I preached at Michigan. And integrity to me means, uh, doing things the right way, being honest. Um, but it also means following through on the things that you say you're going to do. If you make a promise, then, then you do it. And you know, that's a huge part of integrity. And so uh, I'm trying to teach people to live a life of integrity. And at the same time, I'm in a system that's putting young people in a position to challenge their integrity where, you know, they feel like they have to make a decision as an eighth grader, a ninth grader, a 10th grader, and two years later or three years later, they might, for perfectly viable reasons, change that decision as they mature and as, they, as other things come clear. Um, I hated a system that forced some people to go back on their word. And, uh, and uh, I didn't necessarily blame them, them for that. I blamed the system. And, and I didn't like being part of a system that challenged people's integrity that put them in that position. Um, and unfortunately, I felt like I had to. Maybe that was weak. But, uh, but you know, we, we all felt like we had to. And I think all of us are pretty glad that that's over with. Um, every episode, I try to highlight something on social media or a book or something online that I think is worth a follow. I got a call or I got an email uh, a few weeks ago from one of my former players who played called lacrosse for me at Michigan named Suman Kim. Suman's down in Dallas now. and He was a, a great goalie for us here at Michigan back in the MCLA days. And he put me on to Jocko Willink. I had heard of Jocko before, but I'd never really looked into who he is or what he does. Um, J-O-C-K-O-W-I-L-L-I-N-K, Jocko Willink. Um, his Twitter and uh, is at Jocko Willink. He does a podcast, and in his podcast, he talks about – he's a former Navy SEAL, by the way. Um, pretty impressive guy, uh, very impressive guy. Talks about war. Uh, the experience of war, the experience of being a soldier, talks about leadership, talks about training. He, he's big into jujitsu and, and other forms of physical training and talks about the lessons he's learned in life through the experiences he's had. And a lot of it is, is fascinating. Some of it is really emotional. Um, 
I highly recommend checking into him. He's also an incredibly de- um, disciplined and, and tough person, as you can imagine, as a former SEAL, but he lives it. One of the things he does on his Twitter is he gets up and works out every single day at 4.30 in the morning without fail. And to hold himself accountable and to prove it every day, every single day, he tweets at 4.32 or 4.33 in the morning a picture of his watch with that time and that date uh, on it. So you can see I'm up and I'm going at 4.30 in the morning every day without fail. Uh, and to him and, and the, the quote that's right on his Twitter page is discipline equals freedom. If you are disciplined enough to do the things, what that means to me is if you're disciplined enough to do the things that you need to do, uh, one, you're going to get ahead of all of those people who aren't, and that's most people. Um, and, and two, it's going to give you the freedom to live the kind of life above and beyond that, that you want to, uh, you're going to win more battles, um, which is going to give you more and better opportunities. Uh, and, and ultimately you're just going to have more success and you're going to feel great about yourself with the accomplishments that you have. Uh, so anyway, check out Jocko Willink, check out his podcast, check out his Twitter page and, uh, and hopefully that, that can turn you on to something, you know, as soon man turn me on to it. And then lastly, uh, before I wrap up, I got a call yesterday actually from one of my former players who was part of our first D one teams here. And he was just calling to reach out and let me know the ways that the, the things that I emphasized as a coach are impacting him and his life today. And let me tell you as a coach, that kind of affirmation is truly the best feeling in the world of one national championships. And those don't compare to, to that kind of conversation, that kind of call. Um, if you're in this profession for the right reasons, then you're doing it to influence lives. And as a coach, I was often asked how my team was going to be in that particular year. Hey coach, how are you going to be this year? What's your team going to be like this year? And I would often answer that with a quote that I stole from other coaches. I've heard it attributed to a number of coaches, including Bo Schembechler and Bobby Bowden and a number of others. But uh, I'd, I'd usually answer, ask me in 10 years. Um, that's when I'll know what kind of team I have this year when I see the kinds of men and the kinds of leaders and the kinds of fathers and husbands that this group becomes. To me, that's what coaching is all about. And as a coach, when you get this kind of call from a guy three or four years down the road or 10 years down the road or 20 years down the road saying, man, do I get it now? I'm living all the things that you taught me then. Many of them I didn't get then, but I get it now. And I'm teaching those same things to the people I'm around. That's what makes this profession, I think, the best profession in the world. Till next time, this is John Paul for the Adrenaline Podcast, and I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. I'm out.